Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. At least 19 children and two teachers killed at Texas Elementary School. A gunman identified by Texas Governor Greg Abbott as Salvador Ramos, age 18, wearing tactical gear and carrying a rifle, killed at least 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Here we are again. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's the host of Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik, Jamaral Thomas. Jamaral, welcome and thanks for coming in. No, thank you for inviting me. How you guys doing this morning? Man, we are. We're well, doing, this evening, I should say. We're doing all right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm used to the morning. Right. It's like five in the morning. <laughs> An emotional President Biden speaking to the nation last night from the White House urged lawmakers to pursue tougher restrictions on guns. Quote, Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? Where in God's name is our backbone? Uh, Jamaro, the the gun lobby seems to be in control of this domestic policy as the military weapons manufacturers are in control of defense policy. Yeah, agreed. But let's, you know, let's be honest. I am, I've gotten very cynical about these killings especially with political leaders and what they say after the killings. It's always, oh, we look, Obama used to emote very well, right? He used to come out, he very presidential, he emotes for the nation, and then there's another killing within a few days later. Same thing here, right? You had the Buffalo shooter, and you have all of these links and ties to Azov Battalion associated with that particular shooter, but we love one, we hate the other, and now we have this happen again, where, what, an 18-year-old kills a Don't bunch of children California. in the, California. The, the, the Sunday after... Buffalo, yeah. you've got a shooting in a in a church in California. That's and what I mean. The Koreans were right. killed in right. Texas. Oh, oh, you're talking about the uh, the the, the beauty shooting. shop. Oh, the beauty right. shop. Right. 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 I remember that one. Right. I mean, that's what I mean. It's like this keeps happening, and they act as if, oh, we just need a tweak in gun policy, as if a tweak in gun policy is somehow going to make the difference between the impetus for the people to go out there and commit these killings in the first place. Look, you can cut down on the amount of clips, and maybe you're going to get less people die. But what is the reason for the impetus for the people to go out there and kill all of these people? in the first place. And that's the part that they never touched because I don't think they can even get their hands on it. Because I think a lot of it boils down to, look, you have a certain policy outside of this country. Like when Donald Trump was attacking the White House, what did they say? Oh, this is a coup attempt. This is a siege on the White House. Well, when the same thing happened in Ukraine, what was their response? That is a revolution of dignity. You can't have it both ways. And it's like you can't continuously have this policy where on the home front, it's one thing. But externally, when that stuff is happening, it is something else. And the way we perceive it as something else, the way we report it as something else, a man with a gun is what we need as a good guy. Except when you get to the United States, where not so much. Meaning, you got to get to the emphasis of that. Why? You have Canada, you have other countries that have all sorts of weapons that are in the country. It's, they don't have these school killings. Like this. I mean, this kid, this guy, a kid, 18 years old, he's still a teenager. The last two were 18. Yeah, think Both about 18. that. And he goes into an elementary in order to wipe out a large number of children. That's after killing his grandmother. And after crashing into the school. And so, yeah, Biden could say, oh, we need to do something about gun crimes. Well, wait, that have stopped this guy. That's the question. And if not, then why are you telling me about gun policy? You know, I'm I'm glad you said that because I've been thinking of this on a broad perspective that way, too. Like Mm -hmm. two things. 
And from the perspective of guns, what do we do? It's the UAE, a country that has the population of North Carolina, buys like $23 billion worth of weapons, <laughs> right. right? We pump regions of the world loaded with yep. military weapons. Right now, Ukraine, billions of military weapons. We pump them all into these regions, and you know somebody's going to use them, there's going to be violence. Of course. And we're doing the same thing here. We're pumping our society full of military-grade weapons, right? Yep. Now, add that to a policy that says we'll go to this country and we'll just kill all the people we need to take over the country. We'll blow things up. We'll do all the violence we need to do, we need to do. And meanwhile, Azov Battalion, whoever, will lionize them as the great fighters. So we're sending a message to the people in our society that glorifies violence, that says the more weapons, the better. And then we don't not only do we not do anything to stop the flow of military weapons into our country, we do everything we can to for more of it because people are making money off of those weapons. That's right. Profit seems to matter more than lives. I mean, like, I got to be honest, I don't know what they would do about it, even if they pass the legislation. Do they believe that it stops? Which they right. can't. Which they the can't even do. has too much money. No legislation is going through. It's over. I mean, but that's the rub, though. Let's say it did go through. Let's say you had an ideal world where Congress sees it and is like, okay, we're going to do something about it. Would that have stopped this? And if the answer is no. But I don't, I don't know that that's the right question. Go for it. Because uh, that takes us into the, the next story. After kids killed in Texas, Dems declare pass gun safety legislation now. Ed Markey says Congress has a moral responsibility to end gun violence now. But that doesn't end well, gun no, violence. No, that, that's my point. Yeah. But, but see, I think the issue is not properly framed because, no, passing this legislation isn't going to stop gun violence. This is a very complex issue. It's a multivariant equation. This is one factor out of many that need to be done to solve the problem. Part of the issue for me is the way that the Democrats either frame the issue or fall into the false debate yeah. as though background background checks won't solve the problem. Ah, no, they won't. Right. But that's one element. It should be done that anyway. you yeah, need. Yeah, 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 that yeah, you yeah. need to solve the problem. But keep in mind, that's why they do that. Because from their standpoint, okay, Democrat. Just real quick. Okay. One plus one does not equal three. <laughs> right, right. One plus one plus one equals three. Right. There are many factors. And there's a demographic here uh-huh. that people don't pay attention to. No, they don't. 18 to 32-year-old yeah. white Males yes. are the ones that tend more likely than not to commit these crimes. Right. They don't want to talk and about both of the, these had some indicators. Uh-huh. Both of these had indicators. They this don't want to talk about the demographic. On Instagram. Yeah, they the said other, he was acting weird or yeah, something like he, that. Well, yeah. And he had put some stuff on Instagram that implied he was thinking about that. The other kid had got picked up yeah. because they thought, you know what I mean? So there's there are demographics yeah. here that they don't want to talk oh, about. If the demographic trend was 18 to 36-year-old uh, Japanese men yeah. or 18 to 36-year-old <laughs> African-American men <laughs> or, or, Muslim. or Muslim men? All oh, these Muslim oh, terrorists man. keep blowing stuff up. Oh, yeah, so it would be massively different. I guess for me, though, I think from a political situation, you're stuck with, okay, there's a reality, meaning there's a complex number of situations that are creating this particular eventuality in regards to this outcome. But then you have a political thing of how do we manage this in a political sense? And can we ever really do anything about the metrics that create and drive this issue? I think the answer is no. 
they don't have an answer for it. And so it becomes, how do we politically manage it? And in their heads, well, we need to look like we're doing something. I know, background checks. That's the answer. We need to have background checks. As if that's somehow going to deal with the issue. To your point, one plus one plus one equals three, not one plus one. And from the Democratic standpoint, though, what do they do? And I think that's the rub for them. What do they do? Meaning, what do they do from a policy position that would allow this issue to get solved or mitigated? And I don't think they have an answer for it. They, so they come up with they this They look at what can they pass. Yes. And they not, can't even pass this. Not, not what can they do. Right. Because in many instances, I don't care if you pass it or not. I want you to fight for it. Agreed. I want you to to hold your 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 public forums and I want to see you on national television explaining to the American people what is really the problem, yeah. what is really the solution and what you believe will solve it, not what can you pass. Let me, let me add this because you know there's like all these problem solving models like you know D E F I N E right <laughs> and the first D is define the problem. Yes. It's what you're talking about when when they say we got a solution really what you need is some complex studies yes to try to find whether it's demographics and what they've done and their backgrounds and their lives mental illness some really complex studies to try to figure out what is it? Um, there's social media stuff that this kid did. Now, he's on Instagram or whatever, you know, saying stuff about killing people. They're too busy looking for somebody saying, throwing you off because you said something about Nazis in Ukraine. Like, that guy's a Russian... I'm a Putin puppet. We need to get him off the air. Now, let me tell you, guys, if, so no, tell me we're going to murder somebody. Said, yeah. If he'd have said the wrong thing about Ukraine, they'd have been they all over him. They would have found him. They would have found him. But he just said, I'm going to think I'm going to go kill a bunch of people. Right, yeah, we don't got time for that. We're looking for Russian bots right now. I love the fact. I love that, right? Because one is a technological or the very least a scientific um, analysis of a situation that is complex in regards to the social system and trying to figure out what's causing it. The other one is, like you said, we can try to pass this. And go for it. I want. I agree with you. I want to see them setting themselves on fire if this is indeed that important. Meaning, I don't want to hear, oh, we're just giving prayers. I want to see them out there actually doing something, which is why I say I get cynical when I keep seeing these shootings like this. Nothing changes. And more importantly, why is this such an American issue? Meaning, why is this uniquely that's American? What they don't want to, that's what they don't want to talk about. Yeah. Is why is this uniquely an American issue? That's right. Because that then shines the light on the psychosis that is America. Yeah. And they don't want to talk about that. One of the things that, that frightened me about myself this morning, listening to the radio, and they were talking about this issue on the radio, and they mentioned the 2018 Parkland. Uh, oh, I remember that. Florida, uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. Yeah. Uh, a former student opened fire, killed 17, and wounded 17. I had forgotten Same here. about that. They mentioned the 2017 Las Vegas Country Music Festival yes, shooting. Yes, I remember that. 59 people were killed. 500 were injured. I had forgotten. They happen so this, often. This back is, to back. Yeah. This is so much We're living America in a war zone. We're in a war zone. We're living in a war zone. Yeah. These atrocities now are so commonplace that... We don't even remember them. And they just happen. I mean, it it's almost feels like a tornado in a weird way, where it's like you show up and all of a sudden a tornado spurs up and then all of this other stuff taking place. But there are social factors. Like, I don't believe for a moment that this is, oh, this is just magic. 
It's just right. these people just do this. So it comes out of nowhere. Yeah, it may seem that way from this kind of individual perspective of events where you're just kind of dealing with it. But from a larger systemic situation, yeah. Exactly. What is it with this country where we breed people just like this who ever so often randomly, what, like one per year or one per day or something like that? I think at this point we have, what, 200 and something mass shootings. Why do we breathe this? Why do we breathe this? 311,000 students have experienced gun violence at school since the Columbine shooting. This is according to the Washington Post. Yeah. 311,000 kids. Wow. And just think of what that does to a kid as they propagate themselves through life. And a kid, and if you got a kid in school, every day your kid goes to school, parents are scared to death. Yeah, paranoid. You know? But look, here's an example of what we're talking about. And that is the last shooting in Buffalo. So automatically people, and we talked about it, we're like, hey, he's got one of those uh, black sons, just like the Azov Battalion. So people said, perhaps we should consider that. And instead of doing what they should and saying, okay, that's a possible factor, let's let's into it. The media and the government went automatically into, no, 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 couldn't be that, even though it was quite possible for political reasons. Not just possible, very clear. Yeah, they couldn't accept the truth. I mean, yeah. He was, oh, having the, he was wearing the black sun. That was that. But the links go deeper than that. I mean, the Azov Battalion was basically recruiting, training in general. I mean, people coming Kids. into the country. Right. And so beyond that, when the Christchurch shooter took place, what did they do? They put out all of the information. They were saying, hey, look how great this guy is. This particular killer in Buffalo ended up saying, yeah, I took the Christchurch thing as a, um, a as something to emulate, et cetera. Those links are clear. And their head, Tucker Carlson fought. And with that— Let's send $40 billion of taxpayers' yeah, money to the, to the Ukraine. Yep. Send them to the Nazis. Let's do that. Yeah. Let's so fund couldn't. the Nazis. So yep. they can't, in reality, for political reasons, accurately and honestly evaluate these things because as soon as they point one finger, four of them are going yep. to be pointing back to the U.S. empire and the violence that we're visiting on. What are we going to say about uh, a Shireen, Akla, you know, Abu Akla, on and on and on. We start seeing the same thing. Agreed. Jamaro Thomas, host of Fault Lines. What can people expect on Fault Lines with you tomorrow? We're going to be talking about this issue also okay. and trying to get into kind of the psychology, kind of in the, the way we were talking about it here, this notion of, okay, how do we, why is this taking place and why is this uniquely an American issue? Um, and uh, there's going to be, of course, the issue with Ukraine and what's taking place on the ground. And there was some, one other topic that I don't necessarily remember, but those are well, going to be the two folks, you'll ones. tune in tomorrow and yep. you'll find out what that other topic is <laughs> once <that>. Jamal <laughs> figures it out. Hey, man, thank you so much for joining us, man. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. All right. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour. On Radio Sputnik, I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The European Union cracks widen over Ukraine as Italy and Hungary urge truce. Italy and Hungary have urged the EU to call explicitly for a ceasefire in Ukraine and peace talks with Russia, putting themselves at odds with other member states determined to take a hard line with Moscow ahead of a summit next week. What are we to make of this, especially in light of Turkey stating that it will block Finland and Sweden's efforts to join NATO? Everyone is not on the same page. For insight, 
Let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, sir, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. So a draft concluding statement for the uh, May 30 to 31st summit seen by Reuters and dated May 19th describes the EU as unwavering in its commitment to help Ukraine exercise its inherent right of self-defense against the Russian aggression. But it does not mention peace talks. So at a meeting of EU envoys last Friday, Italy's ambassador proposed changes to the text, saying it should refer to peace talks and set out an immediate ceasefire as one of the EU's first goals. That proposal was backed by Hungary and Cyprus, which are among the states most critical of the new package of EU sanctions against Russia that has been blocked for weeks because of internal divisions. Dan Lazar, what signals does this send to you? Well, it's, what it says to me is that, uh, that, the, that things are really confused. And as the war goes on, uh, the confusion is deepening. I mean, first of all, the thing to remember about the EU is it's based on unanimous consent. So it's not majority rule, but every last country has to agree before a policy can can, go into effect. And this is very unwieldy and tends to lead to disunity rather than unity. Um, So uh, so and the. um, And the 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 war and and the sanctions are creating winners and losers. I mean, countries like the U.S. is a winner, relatively speaking, because it's energy self-sufficient, uh, and you know, and is, uh, and uh, therefore, and actually, it tends to actually benefit in certain ways from inflation, the run-up, run-up of energy prices, and the big losers are like Germany, which is uh, highly dependent on, on imported energy, um, and which is facing a major industrial crunch uh, as the energy markets tighten and, uh, and prices go up. Uh, and there's also, there are winners and losers. That there, there are countries that are highly aggressive and wishing to pursue the fight against, uh, against Russia. Those include the Baltic states, uh, Poland, for example. Uh, and then there are those who are worried that we're facing an, another 1914. Um, in fact, on, on Friday, uh, Olaf Scholz, the uh, prime the chancellor of Germany, uh, apparently told the cabinet meeting that he was not going to be another Kaiser Wilhelm II. In other words, he was not going to plunge Germany into another world war. Um, and and that's the, that is a mounting fear. And and the reasons of fear is that no one knows where this is going. No one knows what the end game is. Um, no one knows what the goal should be. And that, by the way, applies to Russia as well. But you know, is the goal to to uh, to 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 uh, merely halt Russia's military progress? Is the goal to expel Russia from all of the Ukraine, including the Donbass and the Crimean Peninsula? Is the goal to then punish Russia, reduce Russia, weaken Russia, divide Russia? Remember, Zbigniew uh, Brzezinski in 1997 called for, for, for cutting Russia into three parts under U.S. tutelage so that it would never be a world power again. So what is the end game here? What is the goal? And, and where is all this leading? And the, and the answer is that no one knows. 
And the more this goes on, the deeper the confusion and the dismay and the and the contention among the various, you know, the various parties in this conflict. A couple of things. I think Russia's, if I had to say what Russia's goals are, I'd read the list of demands that they had. I think they were pretty clear and how they are going to achieve those goals and how to interpret them. I don't, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's the clearest indication of their goals. Here's the issue. The U.S. cannot reveal their goals to their so-called allies for this reason, because part of their goals includes weakening their allies. So they can't say, well, actually, we're doing this to really, you know, give you guys the shaft. That's part of it. They can't come out and say that. But I think by bit by bit, their so-called allies are starting to wake up to that reality that, that the EU lives quite well and has a good industry based off of reasonably priced commodities from Russia. That makes the EU somewhat of a competitor to the U.S. empire. The U.S. doesn't want any of their colonies to be a competitor and to enrich Russia, which they want to see Russia fall, you know, the Wolfowitz Doctrine, and in China fall, blah, blah, blah. So they, so basically instead they can kind of kill two birds with one stone, which is neither of them is working, and that is they can hopefully wipe out the Europeans' uh, economy so they're no longer an, an adversary economically, wipe out Russia's uh, economy so they can get them out of the way and move on to China and be the, once again, the primordial, you know, the world's leader, the only superpower, blah, blah, blah. No, don't get me wrong. That stuff is mad, insane and crazy and none of it's going to work. But I'll put it like this. Here's what I'm saying, Dan. They just can't say to the Germans, we're doing this to you on purpose. But I think the Germans are maybe starting to figure it out. Your thoughts? Well, I think, I think first of all, I don't think the U.S. wants to wipe out the Germans, the, the your, the EU economy, but it does want to subordinate it. It wants to establish the U.S. as the policymaker in chief. And it wants the same thing in the, in the Western Pacific as well, um, vis-a-vis China. Um, and, uh, and, um, prior to the invasion, uh, you know, there was, you know, there was great restiveness in the, um, in the, in the, uh, in NATO and the EU, the, 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 that uh, there was a growing feeling that that NATO wasn't serving U.S. interests. It was serving. It was not serving EU interests. It was serving U.S. interests instead. Um, but that those feelings have been tamped down as a consequence of the war. So now there's there's unity, uh, at least for the moment, and the neocons are dominant at least for the moment. But, you know, but there, there, there are trouble signs. There are trouble signs everywhere. I mean, the war, the, the, the war itself is a, is, a, is a source of trouble because it could go on and on for months and months, if not years. And you have an increasingly dangerous situation in the Western Pacific. Biden. Yes, you're right. Joe Biden threatening China with military retaliation is causing widespread unease um, and and widespread questioning as to where this is going, whether the Americans really know, whether they are all somehow, you know, you know, beholden to a to a reckless imperial power. It's just it's just it's very unstable and it's getting more unstable. And we haven't even discussed the the economy, which is also really entering into a real danger zone. Here is a real indication of how crazy it has become. Henry Kissinger says, 
Ukraine should cede territory to Russia to end war. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger said on Monday that Ukraine should cede territory to Russia to help end the invasion. He urged the U.S. and the West to not seek an embarrassing defeat for Russia in Ukraine, warning it could worsen Europe's long-term stability. If Henry Kissinger is the sanest voice in the room, you are in the craziest <laughs> room in the building. What say you, Dan Lazar? Yes, and by the way, Henry Kissinger is to the left of Bernie Sanders on this question. Bernie Sanders has been towing the Biden administration line and taking a very tough stance. And Kissinger is the, you know, is the, the one voice in favor of some kind of reasonable, you know, solution to this problem. In fact, wait a minute. But the, not, wait a minute. Not only that, listen, listen to this. Negotiations need to begin in the next two months before it creates upheavals and tensions that will not be easily overcome. That's the same thing Foreign Minister Lavrov has been saying. It, well, I, I mean, all he's saying is that it's 1914 redux. In other words, you know, 1914 started with a military conflict between Austro-Hungary and, and Serbia. Um, and, you know, and if they had stopped it there, the war would not have happened. But that war quickly ignited a larger conflagration. And the great danger is that this war will as well. And, and the ultimate nightmare, of course, is some kind of conflict that breaks out in the Western Pacific. At which point it's not only 1914 redux, it's 1914 squared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or so, you know, so, so, so it's, 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 it's crazy. And of course, Kissinger is right. Now, the only problem is, the only problem is that the Ukraine itself is inherently unstable. I mean, it's got a Russian eastern half and a Ukrainian western half. And they're and they're united in a single nation state, but clearly that unity is is dubious, and um, and any attempt to slice off the eastern half or eastern third, however you describe it, will lead to a furious reaction in the west in the, in, in Lvov, which is the center of of, uh, of Banderist ultra-nationalism, and the war will just go on and on and on. So, so the Ukraine is kind of a, a fissure that has opened up in the side of, a, of, of capitalist society. And, and it's opening up wider and wider. So go on. Let me ask you this. The fact that we're hearing this from Italy, that we've heard this from Germany, and that Kissinger, a man who represents a lot of people, a faction of the ruling class, does this indicate that there is a faction of the ruling class looking at this maybe saying, man, we got too many investments to get all this stuff blown to pieces? And the New York Times article, that there is a faction in the ruling class now who's saying, we got to pump the brakes on this, which I think is a positive thing if so. Dan, we got about Well, and to the New York Times, New York Times repudiates drive for decisive military victory in Ukraine. Go ahead, Dan. Dan. Yes, and the New York Times published an editorial, I think it was yesterday or the day before, saying that you know, the situation is getting more confused and America does not, does not know what it's doing and that they're, 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 
that people should be seeking out compromise. But unfortunately, the forces of confrontation are in the ascendant. And the, the neocons, the hardliners, the ones that are dominant, you know, and a few voices like Kissinger are still in a great minority. Um, and so far, the dynamics are in favor of the neocons, which is what is so incredibly dangerous. But is that dynamic, because, is that dynamic changing? Because what was the echo chamber three weeks ago? I don't know that that echo chamber, to your point, is shrinking, but the counter narrative is growing when the New York Times says this is a fool's errand and Henry Kissinger says it's a fool's errand. Uh, the Hill had a big story, same thing. Dan. Yeah, I, 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 yes, you are clearly right. There are, there are, there are criticisms that are, are arising. The establishment is beginning to split. There are certain voices like Kissinger, the New York Times, which is, you know, are, which are beginning to ask, you know, where this whole thing is going. On the other hand, we have Joe Manchin and Davos, I think it's uh, yesterday or today, you know, saying the goal is to drive Russia out of every last corner of the Ukraine, including the Crimea, and, and then to go on and punish Russia itself and to overthrow Putin. And, and, and Manchin actually said, this is an opportunity. Joe Manchin needs to be fitted for a white jacket. Uh, yes, Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. China experts blast Biden's Taiwan slip. In a break with American policy towards China over the past half century, President Biden said during his first trip to Japan as president that the U.S. would be willing to use force in the event of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. How significant and telling is this so-called slip? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., Welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. You know, KJ, one of the things that kind of gets under my skin about this discussion about U.S. using force in the event of a Chinese attack on Taiwan is there's no imminent threat of China attacking Taiwan. You might as well say that in in case Martians land in Wyoming where, you know, it, it, this isn't going to happen, but it just keeps getting repeated as though it is a sensible thing to discuss. A am I underestimating this or am I right? No, you're absolutely right. The Chinese have no design intention or plan to attack Taiwan. That's not what they want. You know, the Chinese, uh, you know, key superpower is the is the strength of patience and they expect that over time uh taiwan will reintegrate with mainland china 
uh, in, um, you know, in a peaceful fashion. And there may be some kind of one country, two systems uh, that is set up. But there is no uh, plan or intention to attack. But that said, uh, it gets under, I think, both of our skins because we sense that it is all about creating a trigger for uh, China to engage kinetically. And I think this is what Biden's most recent slip is about. I mean, this is his third, sometimes some people say fourth slip up. Either way, it doesn't matter. You can only keep saying that, keep threatening that so many times before people understand it as de facto policy. And once it becomes de facto policy, then we're looking at a whole different ballgame. Essentially, the fact is that uh, the U.S.-China relationship is predicated on the Shanghai communique and the two communiques after that, essentially, which says that there is only one China. Uh, Taiwan is a province of China and that the U.S. will not weaponize a part of China against itself. That's key. And if the U.S. has decided to break that, then we're in, uh, you know, we're in a world of, of difficulty. And in reality, it's not even about Taiwan, no more than it was about Ping, what's her name, the tennis oh, player, or Jin, uh, Jin Zhang. Or, none of these are about that in the same way that Ukraine's not even about Ukraine. This is about the United States saying there are two other world powers that are rising and we want to be the only world power in whatever devious and sinister machinations we can use to try to hurt these other world powers. That's what we're going to do. And the Chinese know it and the Russians know it. And and that's where we are. Your thoughts on that? Yes, this is exactly true. It's not about Taiwan. It's not about any specific individual or specific event or the security of any specific country. It has to do with the fact that the U.S. wants to maintain global hegemony. It mapped this out since 1992, and it's on a plan to do this. And the most recent iteration of this is this containment and war against China, which Biden has rebranded the Asia pivot as, calling it the Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, and that has an economic arm, which is called the uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework instead of the TPP. But it's all about maintaining uh, U.S. global hegemony. And of course, you know, Elbridge Colby uh, wrote very recently, he was the author of the National Security, National Defense Strategy, and he talked about how to provoke, and he essentially said that the U.S. can no longer compete economically with China. It cannot win, for example, an arms race. And therefore, uh, what we need is we need to provoke China into attacking uh, Taiwan, and, and then from there on, we'll use that to you know, kind of pull out the the same playbook that we did with Russia over Ukraine. This is the danger that we're facing right now. And this whole idea of uh, of walking back Biden's comments, I, I, I don't like that term to begin with. I mean, when, when the president speaks, he's bigger than E.F. Hutton. When the president speaks, people listen. And he has the world bully pulpit. So when he just went through all that gibberish that he went through about this can't stand, but we do support the one China policy, but this is like Ukraine. What I took away from his saying this is like Ukraine is you're trying to start a fight in Taiwan the same way you started the fight in Ukraine. Yes, I agree with you. It, uh, you know, uh, Taiwan is not like Ukraine because Taiwan is a province of China. We have to remember that. Right. But 
that said, uh, you know, it, it, the similarity with Ukraine is that it is clearly a red line and the Chinese have clearly, as did the Russians, clearly warned the, uh, the United States that they should not cross this red line. Now, going back to you know, Biden's understanding of the one China policy, remember in May 2nd, 2001, Biden wrote a really good article in the Washington Post where after Bush said that he would do whatever it takes to defend Taiwan, Biden said, he said, quote, the U.S. has not been obligated to defend Taiwan since we abrogated the 1954 Mutual Defense Treaty. Mm -hmm. And he also pointed out the TRA, Time Relations Act, only obliges us to notify Congress and to act accordingly based on, uh, you know, the decision of, uh, of of Congress of what an appropriate response would be. So Biden knows exactly what the situation is. And so he's either not no longer in his faculties or the real policy has changed. And this has just slipped out. I I tend to think both of those things are true. (laughs) You left out one other statement. I remain committed to the principle that Taiwan's future must be determined only by peaceful means consistent with the wishes of the people of Taiwan. Yes, exactly. Right. And, you know, that is the, the let's focus on the peaceful means. And China wants, uh, you know, a peaceful resolution. Taiwan wants a peaceful resolution. There is just the fact that there is an extremist uh, group that is currently holding government, uh, the, you know, the DPP, uh, and they have strong secessionist tendencies. And the U.S., by giving them this quote-unquote strategic clarity, which is really just strategic confusion, is greenlighting them to cross uh, and to uh, challenge China. This cannot end well. If I was advising them, here's the first thing I'd say. You people are fools. Aren't you paying attention to Ukraine? We now know that the U.S. was telling the Ukrainians behind the scenes, nah, you'll never get into NATO. But in public, they were saying, oh, yes, we're going to let them in in a NATO to no doubt to egg the Russians on. So they pretend as though that they're going to they're going to fight with them and stand with them. Ukraine gets blown to bits. And then the U.S. uses that as an excuse to do what they really wanted to do, which is all of these sanctions on Russia. Even though they're not working, that was the plan. We're going to get Ukraine blown up, and we will use that as an excuse to say we're avenging the deaths of all these Ukrainians with the sanctions. And maybe I'm wrong, could be wrong, but it appears to me that they want to set the Taiwanese up so that they get blown to bits, and then they can say, well, I guess it's time to put sanctions on the Chinese because they blew the Taiwanese to bits. If you're the guy that gets blown to bits, how many of these has to happen before you realize my part in this movie is not a good part. I'm the guy that gets killed in the first five minutes. I get eaten by the werewolf. I'm the, I'm the black guy in the movie. Yeah, I'm the black bi- guy. I know I'm getting eaten <laughs> by the werewolf first five minutes of this movie. Taiwan gets eaten by the werewolf. Uh, they don't seem to figure this out. Your thoughts? Yes, exactly. They haven't understood that they're expendable and they, you know, the casting, you know, they, they are not the hero that's going to last till the end. They're going to be used. And U.S. is very willing to fight with China until the last uh you know, person on Taiwan province. But that said, this whole notion of, you know, imposing sanctions on China, well, you know, of course, uh, they, they, they're, they're thinking about that this is what all the IPEF is about. It's about creating, quote, unquote, supply chain resilience, meaning supply chain enclosure, meaning decoupling from the Chinese economy. The fact is that 
you know, that's just not possible. First, you know, China's economy is 10 times that of Russia, and it's so deeply enmeshed into the global supply chain that, you know, this is, you know, you know, this is a decade long project to extricate itself from that. So just merely on that level, yes, I agree with you. They're extraordinarily fools to think that they can do that both in the United States and in Taiwan. But the fact is that, you know, the it seems like the uh, you know, the upper ruling elite is populated with, um, you know, tremendous foolishness. Let's focus a little bit on the other side of the equation, and that is China's response to all of this. China warns the U.S. will pay a high price if it keeps treading down wrong path on Taiwan. According to Wang Wenbin, China has complete confidence, the full capabilities, and is ready to decisively curb separatist activities aimed at the independence of Taiwan and to resolutely contain external interference and unwaveringly defend its state sovereignty and territorial integrity. This sounds eerily reminiscent to me of a statement that President Putin made, I believe, to President Biden back in March or back in May when the Ukrainian forces were making their way to the Russian border. And Putin said, my response to this will be asymmetrical and disproportionate. And I don't think he was joking. And I don't think the Chinese are joking now. KJ. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's very similar to what Putin has said. And, you know, he was not taken seriously. And uh, I will also say that it's very similar to what the Chinese said prior to their previous uh, uh, conflict with the United States in 1950. During the Korean War, the Chinese made the same statements. They said, you know, please don't do this. We're serious about this. We beg of you, don't, you know, don't do this. Uh, and the U.S. ignored them, laughed at them, thought they were, you know, not serious, that it was a bluff. And the next thing you, you knew, the, you know, the, the U.S. 8th Army was making the longest tactical retreat uh, in the history of its existence. So I think, you know, I think there's something to be said for taking the Chinese at their word. The key thing to understand about the Chinese and the Chinese foreign policy is that they're very transparent. There are no games being played there. They're very transparent. They're very clear, and they always, uh, they always keep their promises. They say they're doing something, they do it. And I think the U.S. should pay attention to that. Yeah, and the, the other thing i got to add is this. This would be, to say this would be catastrophic for the U.S. Uh, economy would be an understatement. Yes, it would be catastrophic. It would be incredibly damaging. As I said, you know, uh, China is so deeply enmeshed with the global uh, economy and specifically U.S. supply chain, the U.S. would be shooting itself in the foot, if not in the head. But, you know, uh, is this leadership currently uh, attached to reality? I don't know. As you said before, the neocons believe that they can create their own reality while the rest of us go around dithering and studying. That's the arrogance that will lead to very, very dangerous outcomes. I hope somebody's listening. The only other thing I'd add to your previous comment, KJ, is China will not be goaded or baited that they will respond on their timeline, not on the timeline of the aggressors. Exactly. 
Folks, thank you, KJ. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Yesterday was primary day in a number of states across the country. Voters in Texas, Georgia, Alabama, and Arkansas headed to the polls to select candidates for the November general election. Are there any takeaways from these results? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a criminal defense and civil litigation attorney and a lawyer at the Transformative Justice Coalition, Daryl Jones. Daryl, as always, welcome back. Hey, Doc, it's always great to be back. And, and boy, what a what a night they had in Georgia. My goodness. Well, in fact, let's let's start there. Uh, former Senator David Perdue, Republican from Georgia, lost his primary challenge to Governor Brian Kemp uh, overwhelmingly for the GOP primary for Georgia governor's race, trailing 73 to 22 percent with 96 percent votes in. Uh, Kemp will now face Stacey Abrams, the Democrat, in November. This is being hailed as a referendum on Trump and Trumpism. Your thoughts on that whole analysis about Brian Kemp, David Perdue, Donald Trump, and what, if anything, does this say about Trump's hold on the Republican Party? Well, you know, uh, Doug, I tell you, you know, when you go through this analysis of what happened in the state of Georgia uh, with regards to Trump, and you've got to start from the beginning, right? Because uh, in the beginning, we know that uh, Trump makes this call to Georgia where he's currently being prosecuted, investigated in Georgia for it, uh, asking them to find, you know, tens of thousands of votes, 11,000 votes, whatever the number was. Uh, and he makes that call in to, uh, to Rappersburger, uh, the, sec- the Secretary of State there, asking them to find you know, numbers uh, to cheat for him, in, in essence. And Raffensperger won't do it. Secretary of State won't do it. Uh, he then goes to Brian Kemp, who's the, the governor there in Georgia, who got there under questionable circumstances and stuff that he was doing against Stacey Abrams in his, in his initial election. And Brian Kemp won't move for him, won't tell the lie, won't buy into the big lie. So what Trump now has done is that he's now created in Georgia this division uh, between uh, within the Republican Party of those that support the big lie that say that, you know, he should have won Georgia and they should do all this stuff with him, and uh, those that decide to stand against him. And, and Kemp and Raffensperger were two that decided to stand against them. So interestingly, what now has happened is that Trump uh, inherits or uh, goes out and, and finds uh, Purdue to run against uh, Kemp. And this is going to be his high watermark for the influence he has in the Republican Party. Uh, interestingly, he also finds this uh, congressperson, uh, Judy Heist, to run against Rappersberger because he's going to do the double take. You know, you go against the king, you got to get slapped down. What Tuesday showed was that the slap down didn't occur. It wasn't even a slap and nobody went down. It was a swing in the wind. I mean, it was a big loss for Donald Trump, because what you saw happen is that they didn't even garner a third of the votes 
uh, out of the Republican Party coming out of the state of Georgia. So you had Kemp really doing the victory lap very early, and Rappersberger, who they thought was going to be dead in the water initially, he was doing his victory lap very early. So it was definitely a poke in the eye for, uh, for uh, former President uh, Trump and shows the, uh, a lack of control and influence that he has over the Republican Party. It's going to be interesting to see what happens from here, though, as they now begin to gear up for the general election. You know, will the 33 percent, that that third of the voters from the Republican primary, will they come over to Kemp? Will they come over to Rappersburger or will they simply stay away from that's going to will they stay home? Will they sit on their hands? I mean, that's going to be the question now as to what happens in the uh, in the uh, in the November election. But as for this primary election in the state of Georgia, you know, he, he got his butt whipped really badly and was sent home with the message of tail between his legs that you don't have the influence that you thought that you had uh, in the state of Georgia. That clearly was the message there. Well, in terms of the big slap, he probably should have called Will Smith to get some advice. I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. A couple things happening in Texas I'd like to talk to you about. Before you go to Georgia, oh, okay. one, one more question about that, about that, sure. that race. Herschel Walker won easily for uh, the Republican nomination from a particular district for Congress in in Georgia. I love Herschel Walker as a football player, but as a member of Congress, uh, I got real, real questions. Do you have any thoughts? Did you did you track Herschel Walker? Any thoughts on that? I know he ran unopposed, so uh, he has to. Face- well, he wasn't unopposed. Oh, okay. Right, he wasn't completely unopposed. Yeah, no, he ha- he had opposition. It was considered a weak opposition. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. And yeah, and you know, with Herschel Walker, the whole thing with him was that he is Mr. Georgia. Because he went to UGA and, uh, you know, the Heisman Trophy winner and, and played, you know, professional football and everything, he had an image of himself that had been created uh, that made him Mr. Georgia in terms of the sports world. What was interesting about Herschel Walker, and of course he's Trump endorsed, right? Right. What's, uh, what's, uh, what's big about Herschel Walker, though, in this primary is this. He was living off of that thing. Correct. He participated in no debate. Because he can't talk. No debate. <laughs> right. yeah, he, he, he can't. He, he can't. Ain't the sharpest knife. In no, the he's not. He no. He can't talk. So well, go ahead. In addition to that, you also have you know the the domestic violence things that are in his past right. that are waiting to come out, and you have a lot of questions with regards to his educational efforts and his educational pedigree, if you will, uh, that that's waiting to come out, and and representations that he's made that aren't accurate, that aren't true. You know, none of that has been fully vetted uh, at this point in time through this primary that uh, that he's that he walked through. Now, no pun intended. Not only that, his his self proclaimed mental illness. Uh, he he was he talked about he wanted to join the military simply so he could murder people. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he's. I I am not making in any way, shape, or form light of this. This is by his own admission. He, he stability is not his strongest point. Let go ahead, Garland. Uh, Texas, uh, Henry Cuellar, a guy particularly recently who has drawn some controversy, um, seems to have won. And one of the Bushes, <laughs> George Jorge Bush, that's a, that is, uh, seems to have fallen. The Bush franchise has taken a hit. Your thoughts on Texas? Well, you know, tech, let me start with a highlight on Texas. <laughs> Something positive. You know, there was uh, one sister out of Texas, uh, Jasmine 
Oh, I can't come up with Jasmine's last name. Uh, Jasmine ran for Congress in Texas, and she was a oh, Crocker. Crocker. Uh, Jasmine uh, actually was one of the few in the state of Texas when Texas was putting up uh, this uh, voter suppression legislation. You remember there were legislators that left the state and flew to Washington, D.C., so they did not have the numbers that they needed to, uh, to, uh, to vote on the legislation. And Jasmine Crockett was one of the ones that left. And she actually appears as though she's going to get elected to, uh, as a member of Congress now, representing a district for one of the leaving uh, Congress ladies uh, that was there. And that will be good for the state of Texas because she's a real people person. Henry Cuellar, let me tell you, you know, uh, he's one of those uh, few moderates uh, or pro-lifers, if you will, in the Democratic Party uh, that existed. And uh, he and Cisneros have had this really, uh, you know, off and on again election that's going on. It looks like uh, Cisneros, last I saw, was really doing extremely well. I don't know if, if Cuellar was going to pull it off, but it was coming down to uh, to the wire uh, in terms of uh, hundreds of votes, I think, were separating them on the last I checked. Uh, so, you know, the whole Cuellar thing, it, it's he's, he's the last of a dying breed uh, in the Democratic Party that, that's dealing with, uh, very conservative values when it comes to uh, uh, with abortion rights and pro-life, pro-choice. George P. Bush, well, you know, what do you say about the Bush dynasty? I guess it's over. Uh, he's now the third Bush to have run and to have lost. You know, Jeb Bush obviously lost to, uh, to Trump. Uh, there was another Bush that, that ran in Texas and lost. And George P. Uh, was uh, actually serving on a lower capacity, a lower level where he had been elected. And he was trying to elevate himself uh, in this uh, attorney general race, and he now has been defeated. So, yeah, I think it certainly would be an indicator that that, that Bush dynasty needs some work. Uh, it's on life support uh, at best in the state of Texas, uh, and they're probably going to have to relook and sort of refigure uh, what they should be doing. Pierce Bush, I think, is the other Bush uh, or the sh- other shrub in the, in yeah, the right. Bush crew. Uh, I want to I, I quickly go back to Georgia and Representative Lucy McBath, easily defeated incumbent Representative Carolyn Bordeaux in, in the Democratic primary. Uh, what, what happened just quickly is gerrymandering, redistricting took place in favor of Bordeaux, from what I understand, and Lucy McBath was able to, uh, to pull this one out. To me, this was as much about gerrymandering as it was about policy. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? Well, you know, it, it certainly was big on, on gerrymandering and heavy on policy. What was interesting in, in, in this one is that, you know, uh, Macbeth, Macbeth uh, is African-American, and Bordeaux's territory, uh, there was more, when they put the districts together, they had more of Bordeaux's territory than they did of Macbeth's mm-hmm. territory. So Macbeth was seen as the person that was probably going to be the one that lost uh, because of the, uh, the districts and the familiarity with the, uh, that the voters would have with Bordeaux in uh, a district that was more hers than Macbeth's. But what, what became interesting, I think, uh, in this race is that the territory that they took in, though, of Bordeaux was more heavily African-American. And so it, it became almost a question, I think, of, uh, uh, of policy and race and what role you know, that was going to play. And you also had uh, the whole issue also de- uh, leaning in there again with the whole uh, uh, the infrastructure bill and uh, all the social spending bills that were going on and, you know, how that had all played out. So you had Bordeaux, who was probably a little more conservative uh, than Macbeth, 
and uh, and African American and picking up those those uh, those districts that were now heavily African American that probably helped uh, Lucy Macbeth pull that off. Uh, it's it's unfortunate in the bigger picture that they were uh, that the Georgia legislature had the two of them running against each other to eliminate one of those seats. Uh, I mean, in the bigger picture, that's 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 the uh, that's the whole state's loss, and certainly the, the loss for uh, a lot of the people that are are progressive. Uh, that, that was part of their loss, and, and having uh, lost a member of Congress. But uh, in, in terms of what it shows, it certainly you know Macbeth uh, had legs and did well. I understand. It certainly looks like there there may have been some tomfoolery going on in uh, the Michigan governor's race. What are your thoughts on that? Oh man, Michigan governor's race. You know, it sounds like Florida. I mean, it, it's a mess down there. You know, the, the, the whole piece to it being that, you know, there are uh, five, uh, five potential candidates for the Republican uh, primary in the Michigan governor's race that's coming up in, uh, in August. And they have to collect uh, 15,000 signatures in order to be, uh, you know, eligible to be in the primary on the Republican side for the, for the primary. And what, you know, what these five candidates, or at least two of the candidates, are saying uh, occurred is that they had all these fraudulent signatures that went onto the petition. Some 68,000 signatures uh, have been questioned. And what they're saying is that, well, you know, we hired a company to go out and get the signatures, so we really don't know if the signatures are good or bad. Well, wrong answer. <laughs> wrong answer. You know, fraudulent is fraudulent. If you hired someone that committed fraud, you hired someone that committed fraud. Step up and take responsibility. But now, you know, one of the people there, James Craig, is like the former chief of police for the for the city of Detroit. So you have a lot of questions that are being asked there uh, in the in the state of Michigan with regard to uh, that uh, that the, the Republican um, Republican primary race for governor. And so what could wind up happening is five Republican candidates could be disqualified if it is found that all five of them engaged in fraud. What's also interesting here is in the bigger picture, as the Republicans have been claiming voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud, and have been trying to implement all this legislation, this voter suppression legislation, what we find out is Time after time after time, as we found in North Carolina, they're the ones that have been engaged in the fraudulent behavior. It hasn't been uh, African-Americans. It hasn't been Latinos coming across the border and voting in abstention and all this other kind of foolishness. So when you point your finger, you usually have, what, three fingers pointing back at you. Well, there you go. You know, what is it? people that live in glass houses shouldn't do what? Throw rocks. Throw stones. <laughs> Daryl Jones, thank you very much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Y'all take care. Uh, You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Economy bigger priority than punishing Russia, according to an AP Nork poll. Americans are becoming less supportive of punishing Russia for launching its invasion of Ukraine if it comes at the expense of the U.S. economy, a sign of rising anxiety over inflation and other challenges. This is according to the poll. Are the domestic fishers on this issue widening? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia, Professor Nikolai Petro. As always, welcome back. Hello, nice to be with you again. So even though broad support for the sanctions have not faltered, there really seems to be a shift in America's position as the U.S. economy is falling upon harder times. And then we're also now hearing from the EU that Italy is having issues here. Other EU countries are. We've got Turkey on the NATO side saying they're not going to allow Finland and Sweden to enter into NATO. This unified support that the president is claiming seems to be shifting very slow. I mean, even Henry Kissinger is now saying it's time to go another way. Professor Petro. Well, uh, nothing there terribly surprising. I I think uh, this was, if you will, always Russia's uh, objective or assumption that um, the longer they commit to something, the less uh, reliable and unified the Western response will be. And that's, um, that's just uh, simple logic and numbers. Uh, the United States has to essentially, is engaged in herding cats, <laughs> uh, not just NATO, but uh, all sorts of other uh, would-be actors uh, in and around the world. Uh, and uh, it's costing us uh, a lot of political capital. And uh, the poll you mentioned uh, is also indicative of people asking questions about what is, why are we in this, and what is it worth to us? And that's always a, a very important question for, uh, hopefully, political uh, leaders. When they make a decision, they don't just say, uh, at any cost, because you don't want to know what the cost might be. Uh, you, you do things in a calculated fashion, and I'm glad that um, Henry Kissinger has come out and really said the obvious, which is Russia's not going anywhere. Russia's been part of what uh, diplomatic historians call the concert of Europe for 400 years, and it's, and it's still going to be uh, uh, in the future. So we have to deal with that reality, not with our, um, not with our emotions, uh, however high they might be right now. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> you know, we, we know that we hear that uh, a number of things that have happened. It's been reported that the, the trade unions and the economic powers in um, Germany have been putting the pressure on their government saying, hey, you know, we're very wary of this. That can, this can wipe out our industry. We know the, the same thing's been happening in Italy and the Italians and the Hungarians leaders are now saying, look, we want an off ramp here diplomatically. 
Would I be wrong in assuming that if Henry Kissinger said this, that he it wasn't just Henry Kissinger, that he represents some very powerful factions in the ruling elite and that that is a signal, if as it were, that there are people ha- having second thoughts here or possibly looking at the Biden administration saying, you know, you're getting out over your skis on this and you're going to hurt us and, and, and we may be looking for an off ramp. What do you think? No, I've, I don't think that's what Henry Kissinger represents when he speaks, because he's 98, he can afford to say whatever he wants. Uh, and I'm sure he is just, uh, what, what he is talking about is just basic international relations 101. It's common sense. What you're talking about is really what the New York Times op-ed piece. So the New York Times uh, is indeed the signaler for ideas that are being discussed in Washington as alternatives to the official viewpoint. And it's highly unusual for uh, the New York Times to come out in uh, what I believe was an unsigned uh, editorial. So it, it's supposed to represent the consensus of the uh, of the editorial board and saying uh, we do need to come to a negotiated uh, settlement uh, sooner rather than later. That would be our preference. Who are they addressing this to? The uh, actor that needs to be convinced most of all to change position, to shift their goalposts, is Ukraine. But looking at Kissinger, and I understand exactly what you're saying, I look at not only what he said, but where he said it. He said it at Davos, so all the leaders are in the room, and he makes his comment there. And also his comment is in direct contradiction to the Brzezinski mindset of all Russia bad, we have to do everything in our power to, and and Madeleine Albright being a Brzezinski acolyte and Hillary Clinton being a Brzezinski acolyte, I believe, and if I'm wrong, please -hmm. please correct me. So I, I, I see, yeah, Henry's 98, but Henry Kissinger is still Henry Kissinger. And so when he takes a position that is directly contrary to the controlling mindset of U.S. foreign policy at a conference like Davos, to me, that speaks volumes. Yes, but he's uh, not the only senior diplomat to be saying this. The same views have been voiced by Jack Matlock, uh, also in his uh, early 90s, uh, and... uh, former Ambassador John Evans, pretty much uh, every uh, senior U.S. ambassador uh, to Russia uh, in recent years, uh, notable exception being uh, Mike McFall, mm-hmm. um, understands that, uh, again, Russia has to be part of the solution. It cannot be effectively ostracized either from Europe or even more so from the world. And Henry Kissinger, in his uh, analysis, is just talking about basic, he's reminding the audience of basic realities, which uh, unfortunately they may have lost sight of due to the type of media coverage that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the reality on the ground uh, isn't, hasn't changed that fundamentally. Uh, Russia is still an indispensable part of the European security equation. Um, 
there's no uh, getting to Asian markets uh, quickly if, uh, and cost-effectively without going through Russia. The same can be said of the Arctic. I mean, uh, setting up a permanent confrontation with Russia uh, by the West, if the West does that or the United States does that, we haven't begun to see the problems that this could lead to mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. It, it could be much, much worse than the impact that we're having now on on the economy. And I know um, Biden is referring to this inflation as, uh, I think it's Putin's inflation mm-hmm. because of the oil price hikes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, there is some truth to that. But, of course, he didn't have to respond to Russia's uh, aggression this way. He could have responded in a, in many uh, much more moderated tone. Uh, the Biden administration has led the charge into making this a crusade against Russia. And uh, the two arms that he intended to use to bring Russia to its knees, which were uh, quickly working economic sanctions that would immediately impoverish Russia and uh, Make render its military capability uh, inoperable, uh, and secondly, um, uh, hoped for uh, essentially Ukrainian military miracle. Uh, both of those are proving um, are, are proving inaccurate, and as a result, we are leading. Uh, we're we're heading into a long confrontation, which, again, is not to the U.S.'s advantage, because Russia has eight years, at least, of practice dealing with uh, economic sanctions of various degrees. Remember, every sanction that were imposed, every set of sanctions that were imposed on Russia were going to be the worst ever. They were, these were going to be the ones from hell, and the next ones were going to be the ones from It was always overhyped and oversold. And... Uh, Russia seems to have uh, heard this message earlier than most uh, in the United States and actually prepared for this eventuality. So it's really up to the United States and its allies to decide whether they're going to go down this road of uh, breaking ties with Russia uh, or uh, seeking to mend them, considering all the other things that are vitally important for the United States that Russia uh, needs to be involved in in terms of managing the global environment. Uh, let me ask you this, Professor Petro. When this first went down, I remember we had a guest on and the guest said, yes, well, um, NATO is tighter than ever. This was like the first week. And back then, mm-hmm. my position was this. Yeah, for a while. But when the economic hammer starts hitting, and it has already started hitting both here and in Europe, but it's going to get much worse in Europe, that by the time we get into the summer, A, I don't see how any of these governments stand in a parliamentary system, but B, there will be political and social instability due to the economic disaster that they're going to hit, and, and that the NATO may just fall apart and crumble, the EU may fall apart and crumble, but they will be devastated by the economics and the people there. Let me add this. With 6 million extra refugees, they are not going to be happy and Europe is not going to be a fun place to be if you're a politician and you led them in this direction by mid to late summer and into the fall. Your thoughts? Well, yes, Um, but I wouldn't anticipate uh, uh, the unraveling of 
NATO or the EU. A lot of, there's just simply too many vested interests. And I was listening uh, to um, a blogger the other day making a good point that if you are in the Eurozone, your options for leaving uh, Europe are very limited because the European Central Bank can make it impossible, make it insufferable for you to do so. So, um, you know, that's not likely. But uh, as I recall, Hungary is in a relatively good position. I, I think they're not part of the Eurozone. Those nations that are not, that don't use the common euro, the currency, the common currency, the euro, um, and have retained their, their, their own currency are in a somewhat better position. They have a little bit more flexibility in their, in their foreign policy. But overall, uh, I think you're, you're um, absolutely right. And uh, again, uh, the policy decision uh, made in Western governments uh, to um, front end this conflict making uh, any sort of deals with Russia impossible, trying to score, if you will, a quick victory, means that, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, the West has uh, used up its most effective ammunition. The longer this conflict in Ukraine now lasts, Russia's side of the story begins to be heard more and more, and this is not to the West's advantage. Uh, like you said, other interests come into play. Mm -hmm. uh, the initial outrage uh, converts into a sense of déjà vu, mm -hmm. and uh, all of a sudden people say, "Well, you know, uh, we have to uh, learn to, to deal with this." Nevertheless, we still have Russia at our doorsteps. How are we going to? What, what mechanism are we going to forge to prevent this sort of thing? from happening again. And then again, you have to have that starts the process of negotiations with Russia. And people sit there and say, I'm paying all this money for gas. Why? And I can't put food yeah. on my table for what? And I got to defend right. who? I don't think so. Professor Petro, thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Mint Press has a piece entitled, Mark Esper's Telsum Reveals U.S. Plans for War and Terror Against Venezuela. What are the takeaways from these revelations? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a regional election observer last year for the Venezuelan elections, co-founder of North Florida's Hands Off Venezuela, and president of the Hands Off Venezuela Club at the University of North Florida, Alex Suarez. As always, Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Before we get into that, I just wanted to let you know I was updated some uh, bad news in Colombia where the uh, presidential elections are going on now. Um, there was two different um, election observers, um, one Alejandro Rusconi of uh, Argentina and another 
somebody actually know uh, from Code Pink, uh, Terry Matson. They were both deported from Colombia, so that is not a good sign. Uh, these could be part of the ongoing efforts of Duque to try to uh, hang on to power. Well, we'll have to reach out to Terry because yes, we, we we, Terry is a regular guest here. We'll, so thank you for that update, Alex. Um, yeah, she was just deported recently. Yeah. Thank you. We, we'll 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 get her up as quickly as possible as soon as we can find her. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. A, a new book from former Defense Secretary Mark Esper has revealed shocking new details about the Trump administration's war on Venezuela. Quote: A Sacred Oath: Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times is the title of the book. And he admits that the Trump administration plotted to invade Venezuela and discussed assassinating President uh, Maduro carrying out a wave of terrorist attacks on civilian infrastructure and raising a mercenary army to start a Contra-style terror war. Esper also all but confirms Washington's involvement in Operation Gideon, a botched military invasion of the country, and a 2018 attempt on Maduro's life. Uh, Alex, it's interesting to me in, in reading excerpts from Esper and the analysis of it, a lot of this is putting the blame on Trump. But Trump was merely following U.S. policy towards Venezuela. All he did was openly do what Bush and uh, Reagan, Reagan following exactly and Clinton Reagan. and Obama had been trying to do for a number of years, in my humble opinion. Well, yeah, it's like with the Contras in Nicaragua under Reagan. Uh, it was a very similar operation. Um, that's described here. Um, and just to give a quote from that article um, from uh, somebody who I met in Venezuela, um, a Canadian observer, uh, Joe Emersberger, this really uh, sums it up. He said in the article, uh, Trump ignorantly assumed Maduro would be an easy target, something a bully like Trump could not resist, especially the prospect of direct looting of its oil. By the time he realized otherwise, he and his gang were locked into a cycle of escalation that Biden has essentially maintained, backtracking only slightly due to a fallout from the war in Ukraine. So that's what this really is about, right? That we have, you know, uh, a trial against uh, Ambassador Alex Saab because they're claiming that, uh, you know, Guaido's a real president. Therefore, Alex Saab, who's part of Maduro's government, is not a real ambassador. While at the same time, they're making overtures to Maduro to try to purchase oil over the over the war in Ukraine. So besides that one move, Biden has maintained the Trump policy. So, yes, it's a continuation of the imperialist policy um, against Venezuela. You know, here's another interesting tidbit. General Milley also thought we should look at irregular warfare options, such as U.S. training and arming of Venezuela expatriates, blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing about it. The U.S. is always talking about terrorism, anti-terrorism, counter-terrorism. Some of the things that has been done, and when you read this article, some of the things that were attempted were terrorism. As the U.S. talks about opposing terrorism, we sponsor terrorists in the Middle East, and the U.S. is specifically talking about terrorist actions. If someone tried to blow up uh, our electric stations, if somebody tried to attack our infrastructure, we call that terrorism. And in this article, you see that um, a former secretary of defense is unabashed about saying, you know, we were considering terrorism against these people, which means, you know, they did plenty of terrorism. Your thoughts, Alex? And it wasn't just um, uh, this person, Mr. Esper, who was the secretary of defense. Uh, you had John Bolton that wrote a book that that sold uh, that said uh, similar accounts uh, that in a way corroborates this. And also something that's interesting that I found out recently is um, Silver Core USA, uh, which is down here in Florida and out of Melbourne. That's actually a security company that does business with Trump directly. 
that's besides uh, his presidential affairs, like his own private business. And that was one of the, the, the groups or the fronts that they used uh, to try to send mercenaries to either capture or assassinate Maduro um, in exchange for, for bounty, the, the bounty that, the, the, that uh, President Trump had put up. Um, you know, this was back in uh, 2019, uh, actually 2018. Uh, well, 2018, they tried a drone that didn't work. They couldn't. This was the first time they tried to kill a, a president with a drone. And so, yes, this was the following year, 2019. Who was the yep. president in 2018? So the first head of state ever to be have an assassination attempt by drone was Maduro as well. No, no, no. Who was the U.S. president in 2018? Oh, Trump. Okay. And yeah, when so they... Trump was part of that as well. Yeah? Right. Part of the part of the planning, at least according to Esper in 2019. And and didn't they didn't the U.S. foment a coup against the previous president before Maduro? Chavez. Chavez. Yes. Hugo Chavez. Yes. There's a long history of this going all the way back. Um, That's my point. I would say Bill Clinton was leaving when Maduro. I mean, when Chavez uh, was was entering in. So from Bush the second on, that there was always U.S. meddling there. To try to sabotage the Bolivarian uh, revolution that was going on in Venezuela. That was my original point, is that Esper trying to put this in the lap of Donald Trump makes me wonder why this story, why now? And I would surmise... Oh, I see. I'm listening. I would surmise that they're trying to undermine Trump because they see him as the front runner in 2024. I got one other one, Alex. I'm going to throw. I agree with that. And let me throw another one at you. Right now, they want to deal with Maduro so they can get oil. Right. So they want to say it wasn't the U.S. that was trying to kill you. It was crazy. You. It was we the crazy orange man. It was that madman. And now that he's gone, you're the perfectly perfect scapegoat. Go ahead. Yeah. He's the perfect scapegoat. You're right. And they're going to try to use that as a ploy in the, in the negotiations. But the, the number one thing that, that the United States needs to do if they want the Americans held in Venezuela, if they want to start purchasing Venezuela at, uh, oil at good prices, is release Ambassador Alex Saab. They have no leg to stand on in his case. He's been an ambassador or a diplomat for the Venezuelan government since 2018 when they were recognizing Maduro. That in itself should, should make the whole case null and void. And talk about, because the other story that we were going to talk with you about, it, Esper confirms U.S. was aware of Saab's diplomatic status. That's another thing that's very interesting that I just found out. Because um, I was only reading about when Esper was talking about how he's working with Guaido to possibly have a U.S. invasion of Venezuela. But here you have, you know, him admitting um, that they were aware of the diplomatic missions of, of Alex Saab going back years, going back uh, to 2018 when he first became a diplomat, when the United States was still recognizing Maduro, despite there being diplomatic problems. You know, in here, one of the things that Esper says was they knew he was a diplomat. I mean, he doesn't say those exact words, but they knew he was working for Maduro. But then they go on to say access to him could really explain how Maduro and his regime work. It was important to get custody of him. This could provide a real roadmap for the U.S. government to unravel Venezuelan's government's illicit schemes and bring them to justice. Here's what he's saying there. This was about intelligence gathering. They lied in Cabo Verde and said, oh, yeah, he committed this crime. They lied to the American people and everybody, and they're still lying now saying, oh, this is about extortion, money laundering, uh, uh, economic crimes. In reality, they grabbed this man for intelligence so that they could um, get intelligence and, and, and gather intelligence from him. And they're just lying to everybody in the same way. Let me add this. That's what they're doing with Julian uh, Assange. They're grabbing him for intelligence. Go ahead. I'm listening. Do you think at that level, sec we're talking about the defense secretary, 
that he would that if it was true that Alex Saab was a DA informant, as they're claiming in the courts to try to discredit him, and that's not uncommon. Uh, you know, if that was true, you think that he would have mentioned it, right? Because he's talking yep. about Alex Saab being a loyal subject of of the Maduro government. Yep. So, so, so maybe that is the truth. Maybe what they're claiming in the courts now is is not true because they haven't uh, corroborated it. And here's him saying that they were considering Alex Saab, you know, working for the for Maduro's government. So he wasn't saying, "Oh, this guy's going to be a snitch. He's going to work with us." He was saying, "Let's see what we can try to get out of him." Right. And if if he had a history of, of collaboration, they wouldn't have to torture him. The UN looked into it. They had a repertoire that went to Cape Verde, and they verified that there was physical and psychological torture. There was coercion by depriving him of his cancer medication. Uh, you know, luckily he was in remission, and that cancer has not uh, returned as of yet. Now that he's held in Miami, he's incommunicado. I, I've been to Miami, you know, for the for the case, and he, he's held in incommunicado. And I don't even know, uh, even though I have any contacts in the Free Alex Saab campaign uh, from Venezuela and in the United States, I don't even know if he's been returned his cancer medication yet. Um, so if they're doing all these coercive measures against Alex Saab, how is that a guy that has history of being uh, a collaborator with the U.S. government? It's clearly a way uh, to, uh, you know, deceive people and discredit him. You know, if you believe that, then you might as well believe that Saddam still had a WMDs, you know? Well, that, I was going to say this. That was exactly my point. My point was they claim that they're getting them him because he violated some laws. In reality, Esper admits they're grabbing him because they want to find out information from him. They grabbed him to switch, which no doubt means they're torturing him just like they're doing Assange. And I'll throw in one more name. And this, this one may come way out of left field. Manuel Noriega. That is it possible that he was captured for similar reasons, not to extract information from him, but because the United States had been so involved with him, they were afraid that he might divulge secrets of the machinations of the Reagan administration. Is that I, I throw that out there as a possibility. Yeah, but that's that's a very different scenario, right? I mean, oh, a, a totally both, both different scenario evolving where where you know political figures are are uh, kidnapped or, or extradited by the United States. That's the only coincidence I see because oh, yeah. uh, that's, that, with, that's with the only, Noriega, only coincidence I'm he drawing. He had a whole history of collaborating with the U.S. He was trained by the U.S. It was an open secret. Um, but with Alex Saab, there is no evidence of. Um, it just, you know, there's, there's maybe DA tried to reach out to him when he was working for Maduro, but all evidence shows that he rejected any offers that they made. Yeah, that, that's the only coincidence I was drawing. That, oh, okay, yeah, but yeah, you make a good point in the sense that the United States always like to meddle in the region, uh, you know, in, in Panama, and uh, you know they like to go after political figures for, for whatever reason. And of course, they want to express what the actual reasons are openly or rarely do. We see this here in the in the book. Uh, but yeah, they've they've gone after uh, diplomatic and political figures uh, or former diplomatic, really, because it's unprecedented in the sense that he was still an accredited diplomat, and the United States is continuing in there. And their lawlessness and the lawlessness of the empire continues under Biden, much like it did under Trump and even before Trump, as you mentioned. So so what do you see going forward? I don't really see a lot of traction to this story, uh, unfortunately. So uh, how do you see this playing out? Well, that says a lot, doesn't it? That the so-called mainstream media is not talking about this story. Mm -hmm. You would think they would want to use it to discredit Trump to prevent him from running or winning in um, 2024. But at the same time, they're going to have to admit that Biden it has almost the same identical uh, policy towards Venezuela. And it's clear to everyone why he's suddenly making tours because of the Russian oil embargo. It has nothing to do with Biden out of the goodness of his heart, you know, wanting to have better relations with Venezuela. It would be very um, 
what's the term, very cynical to, to think to think such a thing. And, and, you know, the other thing, when you read, dig down in this story, one of the things that you see after they get finished telling you all about that Trump wanted to do what, what, did he, what he wanted to do in Venezuela, which is like we, what we said, the same thing all the other presidents wanted to do in Venezuela and every other Latin American country and did in most of them, what you find out was there was also a number of places where Trump said, hey, let's bring the troops home out of Afghanistan, let's bring the troops home out of South Korea, that every time Trump made an, uh, 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 an inkling that he wanted to do the right thing, they talked him out of it. You got one minute. Yeah, that's true. You know, when he had an idea that was reasonable, they didn't want to go along with it, right? It's, it's like, how about we not send, you know, tens of billions of dollars to not saying, oh, no, you can't talk about that. So whenever anybody in Washington has a rational or reasonable idea, they're talked out of it, apparently. Alex Suarez, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate the analysis. Thank you for the update on Columbia. And uh, we're going to reach out to Terry and, and follow up with her. Thank you. I'd love to talk about Brazil next time as well. There's some interesting things going on there. Okay. Well, we'll set that up. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Bombshell. FBI agent testifies higher-ups were fired up. The leadership pushed the Trump probe despite flimsy evidence. FBI agent Chris Hyde testified yesterday in the Michael Sussman trial that he learned the Trump-Russia allegation was false within a couple of weeks. In explosive testimony yesterday, he said that fired-up senior FBI leadership insisted on continuing the investigation into now-debunked allegations of a secret Trump-backed channel to Moscow via a Russian bank, despite learning the story was unsubstantiated. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Good to be here, Wilmer. Thank you. So what's your thoughts about this? Hyde was told in an instant message from FBI agent Joy Patenka, who was the supervisor leading the Crossfire Hurricane investigation regarding Trump-Russia collusion allegations, that senior leadership was fired up about the Alpha Bank and Trump Organization email servers and not opening an investigation was not an option, even though he found out that the story was bogus, Steve Poikinen. It just goes to show you the lengths that uh, parts of the intelligence community uh, and parts of the D.C. political apparatus were willing to go to push this this narrative that uh, Donald Trump was in the pocket of Vladimir Putin, that there was uh, coordination to the point to where Donald Trump was not even a candidate. He was just a puppet. That, that all he was, he was being manipulated by the president of the Russian Federation and every step of the way upon examining the, the information given to them, not the evidence, because it's not really evidence, 
but upon examining the information giving them, anybody looking at it went, this doesn't hold up. No, this is garbage. So it was at a, a management or leadership level, uh, it, to quote Donald Trump, a witch hunt. You know, Steve, I am, in fact, a trained investigator, and you're not, to my best of my understanding, a trained investigator. But I am not. Both of us can look at this and say, well, wait a minute. The FBI got in the Steele dossier. Anyone could read the uh, Steele dossier and figure out that it's a lump of garbage. And, in fact, we find out that the FBI did, in fact, research the Steele dossier, talk to the people who provided the information and knew it was a piece of garbage and continued to submit it to the FISA court and tell the FISA court that they thought it was true, even when they had concluded that it was garbage. We also find out that this allegation came in. And likewise, they looked at it, they found that it was garbage, and what did they do? The same thing as the Steele dossier. They continued to investigate it as though it was valid. I'm a trained investigator, you're not. John uh, Durham is supposed to be the height of trained investigators. Of the three of us, I think both of you, you and I realize the FBI was in on this and you have to start investigating the FBI because they were in on it. I think the only person that hasn't figured that out for reasons that I will ask you is John Durham. <laughs> Why is that, Steve? Well, it's in John, <laughs> it's in John Durham's best interest <laughs> to, to not draw those conclusions. It's in his best interest. To uh, to steer his investigation down to the lowest level possible available, you know, scumbag or convenient <laughs> scapegoat, um, and then you know, smack his hands together and say, "We got it. We got the bad guy. A problem solved, and and we're moving on." It's the case with you know nearly every single one of these high level uh, DC criminal investigations. The, they'll find either a convenient fall guy or someone who was expendable from the get-go to hang the whole operation on. Because, as you noted, you, even in the casual reporting of this, FBI leadership or people involved in upper management positions of the FBI not only were aware of the fact that everything <laughs> that uh, the assessment had given them was bogus and that the Steele dossier was bogus, but they were actively involved in keeping the rumors alive and keeping the lies alive because it served their own personal political interests. So what this all says to me, particularly if you view this in the context of the COINTELPRO program that uh, J. Edgar Hoover implemented in order to undermine uh, the civil rights movement in this country, is that the FBI, to a great degree, was a political operative, and the FBI continues to be a political operative, and that seeking justice is not what the FBI, even though that's what they claim they're about, that's not the game that they play. Well, no, the FBI is in the business of protecting the interests of whatever prevailing bureaucracy has been, you know, funneling the, the coin into their coffers or allowing them to operate. It's why we just found out not too long ago in the, the Whitmer governor kidnapping plot why the case was dismissed, because all of the plaintiffs were FBI or all of the defendants <laughs> were FBI agents. 
like 14 out of 16 of them were either FBI agents or connected to them. And so they were like, we can't charge any because it's all the FBI. So, I mean, yes, the, the FBI operates as a this sort of a uh, on-the-books uh, domestic terror organization that investigates itself and then will eventually arrest some of itself to be released later because they were arresting themselves. It's a very confusing and very disappointing proposition. Speaking of terror organizations, the CEO of Google-owned video of, of <laughs> Google-owned video platform YouTube, Susan Wojcicki, was ta- was speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Speaking again of terror organizations, and at any rate, what she said was, when the conflict in Ukraine broke out, YouTube realized this was an incredibly important time for us to get it right. Now, here's what's interesting: what she said next. With regard to our responsibility, not get it correct, but in regard to our responsibility, which is the U.S. State Department, get it right. Your thoughts on uh, Google and there at the, of all places, the World Economic Forum at Davos. Uh, I can't imagine there's any shady characters there. Uh, uh, your thoughts, Steve? What, what, what's <laughs> truly impressive about what they're able to do with the World Economic Forum in terms of, of how they display the full corporate capture of the press is they'll hand, uh, for example, the uh, the deputy managing editor of the New York Times a guest pass, not a press pass. And so you've got, you know, members of the corporate press walking around as guests of Davo, not as investigative journalists who have questions that are trying to find out what's going on with YouTube and with Google. What you've got is a, a representative of the public-private partnership who's ostensibly there on the tech side, but is delivering the State Department messaging from that platform. So it, it's uh, a, a very clever way to disseminate the marching orders of the U.S. government in Davo without having to send an official representative or senator. What she also says is the conflict in Ukraine showed how information can be used as a weapon. What we're really seeing in this conflict is that information does play a key role, that information can be weaponized. And she also goes on into later on in the article is how YouTube is being incredibly selective in what they say, what they present, and how they present it, it's not about balance. It's not about accuracy. It's about, again, as Garland pointed out, their responsibility, and now I'll say, as an agent of the imperial power. Well, yeah, I mean, because she goes on to say, uh, both you know, on stage at Davo and then in the article, that YouTube is still broadcasting to Russia. It's not like they, they terminated service to the country. All they did was get rid of all of the channels that were putting out any kind of uh, information or content that did not fall immediately in line with uh, U.S. interests. So she's admitting, no, we're still, what, what I mean by, you know, we need to get this right is we've got to pump propaganda into Russia via YouTube, we just can't let any out. And if there's any 
channel out there in the West that is discussing this in uh, a sane or nuanced manner, well, obviously they've got to get nuked too. Uh, this is the perfect time for to tell people to follow me on my channel, rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N.com forward slash Garland Nixon. It's better than YouTube. How about that? I do, uh, I do video on Rockfin. Follow me there, Garland Nixon. All right. Caitlin Johnson writes, all the safeguards are being set up now to manipulate information online are not there to eliminate lies. They're there to eliminate the truth. Steve, Steve your thoughts? Well, and she's absolutely correct. She says that it's it's information that they're afraid of. It's not disinformation. They're not concerned about disinformation at all. In fact, in most cases, they're the number one purveyor of it. We played a clip on the show this morning, Joe Biden talking about the shooting in Texas, where he was like, oh, well, there's got to be someone who can stand up to these lobbies. Dude, you're the biggest arms dealer on the planet. You're the number one <laughs> arms dealer in the world. Maybe you're sending some mixed messages if you're talking about your local gun lobby. I mean, but this is such consistent uh, inconsistency on behalf of the empire. And I'm pretty sure Caitlin points it out in the article, too, where it's just it's empire operating on do as we say. Never watch what we do because we don't intend on explaining our hypocrisy. Online platforms have been ramping up their censorship protocols under the banner of fighting disinformation and misinformation. Those escalations always align with narrative control agendas of the U.S. centralized empire. Caitlin Johnson, that's part of her piece. Censorship protocols and according to the Supreme Court and according to the First Amendment, censorship is unconstitutional. Where's the constitutionality or where's the challenge of the constitutionality of the complete corporate capture uh, of the press in regard to this? We have five media companies, six media companies that control 95 percent of the major outlets. Most of the independent outlets exist as satellite, uh, uh, you know, the organizations orbiting around them. The, if we're going to discuss the constitutionality of any of this, there are multiple different avenues we can go down before uh, entertaining the, something this remotely ridiculous. Um, the, we said on our show the minute Joe Biden walked out to say we weren't going to war with Russia, that the first casualty in every war is the truth. And every single day that's gone on in the last three months and a couple of days has proved that to be uh, one of the most frighteningly accurate statements we've made. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. CNN reports they were shooting directly at the journalists. New evidence suggests Shireen Abu Akleh was killed in targeted attack by Israeli forces. What are we to make of this, and what will the Biden administration's response be? 
for insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an author and journalist uh, working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about U.S. foreign policy and the Middle East with a focus on Palestine. His latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. Robert Fantina, as always, Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So CNN, of all places, reports the Israeli military said is, says it is not clear who fired the fatal shot. In a preliminary inquiry, the Army said there was a possibility Abu Akleh was hit either by indiscriminate Palestinian gunfire or by an Israeli sniper positioned about 200 meters or 656 feet away in an exchange of fire with Palestinian gunmen, though neither Israel nor anyone else has provided evidence showing armed Palestinians within a clear line of fire from her. But an investigation by CNN offers new evidence, including two videos of the scene of the shooting, that there were no active combat nor any Palestinian militants near her in the moments leading up to her death. Videos obtained by CNN corroborated by testimony from eight eyewitnesses uh, an audio forensic analysis and an explosive weapons expert suggests she was shot dead in a targeted attack by Israeli forces. Robert, talk about this assassination in the context of your new book, Modern Settler Colonialism. Well, this is uh, another situation where the uh, colonial empire, which in this case is Israel, doesn't want the world in general to know what's going on, to know what it's doing. And uh, the uh, Shireen was a well-respected, uh, beloved uh, investigative reporter. She was uh, she had worked in that field for 25 years, beloved as I mentioned for all the Arab countries. Uh, but she was a, a powerful voice for the Palestinians in bringing to light the abuses they were suffering under on a regular basis from Israel. So she had to be eliminated, and she was. You know, just looking at that story, one of the things that jumps out to me, and again, you, with your book re regarding settler colonialism, it is, is that is the description of the players in any given event. The Palestinians, you know, the Israelis are referred to as soldiers or members of the IDF. The Palestinians are referred to as militant, you know, a pejorative uh, uh, term that they're somehow, you know, f militant kind of conjures up something negative, some people that are outrageous and fighting against a just system. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's very true. And they refer to them as terrorists. IDF are the official soldiers. They are uh, part of the government. And yet the, uh, the resisting Palestinians are, as you said, militants, terrorists, uh, that sort of thing. It's, it's language, language of colonialism that uh, demonizes uh, the, the victim nation and its people and uh, attempts to give authority and legitimacy to the colonizer. Uh, Israel has been doing this for years, but in the last few years, the, uh, the perspective has changed drastically. And missteps by Israel, such as the assassination of uh, Shireen, uh, the, the killing uh, a couple of years ago of Palestinian med uh, medic uh, Roseanne al-Najjar, was another example that people are seeing this and saying, no, this isn't terrorists being killed, this isn't militants being killed. These are people being killed who are protected under international law. Shireen Abu Akleh 
was a Palestinian-American journalist. Jamal Khashoggi was a Saudi-American journalist. And we get really no response from American administrations when Americans are assassinated by foreign governments. We don't. And this is, uh, this is shocking. You know, if they were assassinated by, say, the Russian government, then there'd be an outcry. If they were assassinated by... Uh, the Venezuelan uh, government? Venezuelan, Yemeni, Syrian, any of these other... Iran. The United States doesn't like, certainly Iran, uh, and that's another topic, uh, and Iran scientists recently assassinated, but these, the fact that Israel is a close ally of the United States and assassinated uh, an American, uh, Palestinian American, well, that's going to be overlooked. There'll be some, there'll be some statements, the U.S. has called for an investigation, uh, but no condemnation, no, uh, no sanctions, no threats of sanctions, Certainly no invasion because of it, uh, and this is not. This is an inconsistency. One of the many inconsistencies in what the United States says and does. So the killing of of press personnel is uh, international crime. It's, it's a crime against international law. Uh, the United States purports to support international law. It doesn't certainly, uh, but it says it does. And this is another example where this will be uh, overlooked. The Khashoggi assassination, there was a little bit of talk, they shouldn't have done this, we think we know he's responsible, et cetera, et cetera. But what, was, what, what were the repercussions for killing him? Arm not, sales, it, arm sales to the Saudi uh, Arabia? They, they, they were not uh, challenged, certainly not decreased. And now with uh, Shreen Abu Akhle's death, it'll be the same. The call for an investigation, uh, Israel will whitewash the investigation in some way, and then it'll all blow over, and the United States won't talk about it anymore. There's one more point on this I, 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 I don't want to make, and that is when you murder Shaheen Abu Akleh, you're trying to stop a message. You're, you're trying to stop a narrative. You're trying to deter information from being disseminated. When you murder Jamal Khashoggi, you're trying to stop information from being disseminated. That's exactly what the— Biden administration was trying to do when it started this disinformation governance board. Governance yeah. board. It wants to stifle the dissemination of information. There's a spectrum here that I think people need to, you know, assassination, assassinating journalists is the ultimate effort in an ongoing attempt to see to it that information, accurate information is not disseminated. That's absolutely true. Because uh, Shireen Abu Akleh was not reporting what the United States government wanted to report, and therefore she was eliminated. Let me ask you this. There's a report that President Biden may be reconsidering his trip to Israel and the region because of the instability in the, in the Israeli government. And I believe, you know, that something else has recently happened where the Israelis apparently assassinated an, an Iranian, a very high ranking general, and the Iranians have threatened um, retaliation. It seems to me that. Israel has kind of, and even looking at its internal politics, it's kind of spun out of control in that in order to keep doing what it wants to do, it's alienating itself from the outside world and destabilizing itself politically. Your thoughts? Yes. The, you know, the country, the nation of Israel, the so nation of Israel, has been getting away with murder for generations. 
very bold murders, uh, killing General Soleimani a few years ago, the recent killing, assassination of another general, uh, and it just simply gets away with it. Even though these are violations of international law, blatant violations of international law, the United States has always backed it up uh, and, and continues to do so. Uh, the so-called Abraham Accords, these agreements and alliances with some Arab countries, are going to start to unravel because the people in these countries have never wanted this, these agreements. And now with this, uh, the assassination of Shirin uh, Abu Akleh and other behaviors, there's going to be more and more resistance in, in those countries. The United States, which uh, in, in the United States, the Republicans and Democrats have traditionally walked lockstep in support of Israel. That has changed. That is no longer the case. So Israel is continuing to go on its way of thinking it is immune to any kind of international uh, consequences for its crimes against humanity and violations of international law, but it's in for a rude awakening. Following to uh, Garland's point about the White, the White House saying they haven't set yet set a date for Biden's visit, this is the opportunity for President Biden to come out and say, I'm not coming and here's why. I'm not coming because you're assassinating journalists and uh, I'm not coming because you're involved in the assassination of uh, other innocent individuals. I mean, here's the prime opportunity for Biden to make the right call. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem as though they're going to be able to find the guts to do it. Robert? No, he won't. Uh, the murder of a journalist, uh, one would think, is, is the final straw, the, the last straw. But he has tolerated the killing of, as you mentioned, innocent men, women, and children by Israel. Shooting children in the back, shooting them in the head, uh, when there is no provocation. Intentionally maiming them, because we, we have to also, we, we cannot lose sight of the fact that one of the stated policies of the Israeli military is to maim these children so that they, so that their loss of limb for the rest of their lives sends an ongoing message to future generations. Yes, and this is, this is unspeakable brutality. And we see pictures of these children as they become teenagers playing uh, basketball with one leg or with one arm, whatever it might be. Uh, it's a, continued, a continuous attempt to break the spirit of the Palestinians, something Israel has not been able to do in over 70 years. Biden now could make history. He could make history by saying enough. Uh, Israel, here's what you have. You need to abide by international law, vacate the... Uh, the illegal settlements uh, and the blockade and, and recognize Palestine as a nation. Biden could do it, but this is Joe Biden we're talking about. He's spent 40 years in U.S. governance. He's always been a Zionist. He's always played it safe, uh, known kind of where he, his political advantages, at least financially, for donations and so on. He is not going to take a courageous stand on any issue uh, at all. He could... He could do something now about the, uh, the gun problem in the United States. Another classroom of children was just slaughtered. And again, it's thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers don't cut it any more than uh, asking uh, Israel or, or demanding an investigation cuts it. These are inadequate measures, 
And that's all he's going to take. The maiming of children in Palestine by the Israeli government reminds me of King Leopold in Belgium cutting off the hands and the feet of Congolese children back in the late 1800s to to punish them for, I think, not producing enough rubber. And if their parents didn't produce enough, they then, would cut off the, the hands, hands of the feet of their children. Right. 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 That's that's these settler are the colonialism settler colonialism. Robert Fantina, you got one and a half minutes. Yeah, it's exactly it's it's the same. Settler colonialism has not changed uh, in in its uh, basic theories. It's changed. It has become more brutal because there's uh, Leopold might have wanted to have drones, but he didn't have them. Uh, Israel has them. Israel has the Iron Dome. Uh, Israel has uh, a number of other. Uh, modern, all the modern technology needs to maintain a brutal uh, settler colonialism in Palestine, and it continues to do so. But uh, the basics of colonialism have not changed. Uh, exploit people for their natural resources, their property, treat them as slaves, as second-class citizens. We see this uh, in uh, Palestine on a daily basis. The United States and other countries of the world allow it to happen. And the United States finances it and supports it in the United Nations. Robert Fantina, as always, thank you so much for your time. Again, the book, Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. Uh, I have the book. I've read the book. Get the book. It's well done. Robert Fantina, looking forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Always my pleasure. You got it. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. (laughs) 